Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture. I'm your host, Executive Director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project, Bobby Black. In today's episode, we're going to be tackling an important topic, racism and its relationship to cannabis. Racism is an underlying plague that has been ingrained in American life, culture, and government since its very beginnings. Our original sin of slavery, which was used to build our nation, eventually led to our civil war and the emancipation of those slaves. But despite gaining their supposed freedom, people of color continued to be marginalized, murdered, disenfranchised, and oppressed by white America through Jim Crow laws, the Ku Klux Klan, lynchings, segregation, redlining, and imprisonment. Nowhere has this been more evident than in the failed war on drugs. Since the very beginning, cannabis prohibition has been rooted in racism. Fear of black jazz musicians and Mexican immigrants were the justification by which cannabis was first criminalized in the early 20th century. The drug war was the means by which President Nixon was able to target and arrest black civil rights activists and anti-war activists in the early 1970s. Racism was the impetus behind the mandatory minimum drug sentences that led to mass incarceration of blacks and Latinos that began in the 1980s and continues to this day. Using stop and frisk laws and enforcement efforts focused on minority neighborhoods, hundreds of thousands of people of color have been imprisoned for nonviolent drug charges and thus forced into a form of modern slavery, providing free labor, losing their right to vote, being saddled with a criminal record, making it difficult to rebuild their lives, or worse, beaten and killed by overaggressive police before even seeing the inside of a courtroom. Now in the wake of the recent killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other people of color by police, millions of people are making their voices heard in a series of massive ongoing protests, not just here in America, but around the world, demanding an end to police brutality and the systemic racism that has plagued this nation since its founding. In acknowledgement of this powerful new movement for racial and social justice, we're devoting this episode of Canthropology to discussing the history of racism as it pertains to cannabis in America. Joining me for that discussion is a woman who is highly knowledgeable on these issues. She's a writer, researcher, and curator who contributed to the 2014 American Book Award winning Jim Crow Freedom, Memory and Identity in Black America Since 1940 and author of the upcoming book, Reefer Madness, The Roots of Marijuana Prohibition in America. She's also the founder and executive director of the Equity Organization, a nonprofit organization working to advance fair, effective, and equitable criminal justice and drug policy reforms. I'm very proud to have Yale graduate, entrepreneur, and activist, Natalie Papillon on the show today. Natalie, welcome to Canthropology. Thank you so much for having me, Bobby. I feel like you know, I'm really excited to talk about these super important issues, but I'm also really excited to learn from you as, as there are very few people in this country who are as familiar with the racialized history of marijuana prohibition in America. Um, 
as, as you are. So this is going to be um, educational, hopefully very interesting, um, and hopefully it'll galvanize some folks to action. Absolutely. First of all, let me start off by asking you, did I get anything wrong or leave anything out in my introduction as far as you can tell? No, it was amazing. I, <laughs> I feel like you need to publish it as well. That introduction was so great. Thank you. Um, before we jump into the history and the issues, uh, let's learn a little more about you and your organization. Uh, can you tell the listeners, uh, give us some of your background, where you're from and how you got involved with doing the work that you do? Of course. So like many in the space, this was kind of a serendipitous entrance. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, but I tell people I grew up all around the South and then moved to Connecticut for university. And now I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, where I've been for, you know, the greater part of a decade. And That's my hometown, Brooklyn, New York. Come again? That's my hometown. I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Oh, where in Brooklyn? <laughs> Bensonhurst. Oh, nice, nice. Um, I will never leave. There's a lot of talk about fleeing, but I'm, as someone from Atlanta, that was like the promised land to get to New York City, and so I'm very happy to be there. Um, and, you know, I originally, my academic background, like you mentioned earlier, is very much focused in African American history and social culture, um, and originally the plan was that was to be my career, you know, going to academia, write books that like seven people would read, but I'd um, get really interested in it. I took a very sharp turn from doing that and ended up working at Google and doing uh, brand strategy and marketing and, and things like that. And so um, for the sort of first few years of my career, I was very focused on technology and, and in technology spaces and really had strayed a bit from anything related to social movements or social justice, um, you know, doing what I could in my personal life, but that was not the focus. Um, in 2016, I felt, you know, for some random reason, felt more compelled to uh, enter into something that was more social justice focused and really thought I would sort of go into the machine and work for a political campaign. And around the same time, I had a had a very brief conversation with a colleague who mentioned that her father was starting a hedge fund in the cannabis space. And at first, I didn't think anything of it, like, good for you, good for your inheritance. Like, I mean, that's interesting. Um, I just hadn't been super involved in, you know, the development of the industry, um, not a big consumer. And didn't think much of it. But as I went home that night, I recognized that, you know, no shade to, to her father, but this sort of wealthy, well-established, well-connected older man was set to profit tremendously off of a plant that had been criminalized and used to um, brutalize and disparage predominantly Black and Brown communities for over a century. And I spiraled, for lack of a better term. You know, I um, started volunteering with different drug policy organizations. I was like, this is my issue. I feel very called to it and compelled to it. And I'm a pretty cynical person to begin with. Like, I always assume there's something pretty insidious about a lot of the policies we grapple with today. And even I was floored um, by this particular 
history just because it was so explicitly racist and xenophobic. And I also feel like there was very little, even in sort of my relatively progressive, quote unquote, woke community, politically engaged community, there was very little conversation about drug policy and specifically about cannabis policy. And, you know, that's a focus group of one, but even as I was having conversations, um, you know, a lot of people weren't making the connection between, oh, cool new industry, quote unquote, new. I want to call out that. Um, and sort of this mass incarceration machine and, and the criminal legal system more broadly. So, you know, after doing a lot of volunteer work for some time, um, I saw there was space in New York specifically to create an organization that would be focused on the intersection of drug policy and criminal justice reform. And that led me to what I do now, which is the equity organization. And we do a lot of research, writing, um, legislative advocacy, which is just a fancy word for lobbying on the local, state, and federal level um, to try and advance these just and equitable drug policy reforms. 99.9% of my work is focused on cannabis for obvious reasons, but you know, it, drug policy reform needs to go far beyond that. And hopefully the end of marijuana prohibition will be the first step to felling this horrifically expensive, discriminatory, and ineffective conflict. <laughs> right on, right on. So are you yourself a cannabis user? Are you a sometimes user, uh, a steady user, or a non-user? I tell this to everyone. I actually had a conversation with a police officer a couple months ago about this in New York. You know, I occasionally use, I really need to focus on um, learning more about what works for me best and at what time. I think, um, though I, this is all I think about and talk about, I have not sort of like gone through that personal exploration and um, that is on my bucket list. And I was telling this police officer, like, I need to get better at, you know, being a cannabis consumer. And I think he was a little surprised I was talking to him about that, given um, not technically legal in New York, but, you know, I occasionally partake. And while it's not for everyone, I, I think it's obviously has incredible social and spiritual and medicinal benefits for so many people. And I often highlight that in my work. Cool. Well, uh, I hope that you will uh, continue to do some experimentation and use your groove with uh, with cannabis. That would be cool. Um, so you decided to make this leap into social justice. You decided that cannabis and drug issues was going to be your main focus, and then so how did that translate into into the equity organization that you founded? Um, so the equity organization at its onset was really state focused and it was focused on legalization in New York and ensuring that there were robust, comprehensive and sort of funded social equity provisions in that legislation. So that we were almost exclusively focused on educating policymakers about a lot of the issues that we'll discuss later in the podcast and also making sure that they were aware of the dynamics, whether they were social equity focused or just regulatory dynamics that existed in other states that had legalized. Because, you know, this laboratory of democracy has some, some tough implications, but, you know, the goal in New York and the small group of activists who were really focused on it was to make sure that some of the issues that have plagued other states did not also plague New York. Um, and that's been a really interesting ride and still focus a lot on that. Obviously, at the date of this recording, um, 
we have not passed a legalization legislation in New York. So that's a whole nother episode for sure, but it's been a wild ride there. Um, but by virtue of doing a lot of this state level legislative advocacy and issue-based advocacy, um, you know, as I'm sure you're well aware, it bleeds into other states and then sort of it bleeds into the federal level. And so what we're really focused on now is just sort of making sure the criminal justice related implications of cannabis policy reform are sort of centered in any conversation, whether it's happening on a city council level or in a state or, or on the federal level. And so we do a lot of public education, um, have a huge sort of report coming out in the next couple of days around um, the intersection of policing and American policing practices in, in cannabis prohibition. So that'll be really interesting and, and quite at the moment. And um, we also work with various local organizations to do direct services. So, you know, expunging past records, um, working with local DAs to advance automatic expungement measures and things like that. And of course, you know, while the bulk of our focus is not on quote unquote social equity provisions any longer, um, we still do a lot of education on the local and state level around the need for it and about what has worked and what hasn't worked um, in other states. So, Well, we're going to get into uh, mass incarceration and New York laws and all that stuff uh, a little later, but I want to take it back right now to the beginning and uh, let's talk about the origins of cannabis prohibition and their racist roots. Um, and so I'm, I'm very aware of the broad strokes and a lot of the, some of the details, but I'm counting on you to, uh, help educate me as well. If you have any information that I may be missing, so feel free to jump in and correct me if I leave anything out. Um, uh, and I'm going to note in advance that quite a bit of the information that I'm, uh, going to share here, uh, was called from, uh, Jack Harrer's classic cannabis information Bible, though emperor wears no clothes because for so for so many years, that was the go-to source for a lot of this information. So, I definitely uh, use that as a resource, just to just as a preface. So, as far as I can tell, the first smoking of uh, female cannabis plants in the Western Hemisphere began in the 1870s in the West Indies, uh, Jamaica, Bahamas. Um, uh, there was immigrants from India, the Hindus that came in. There was uh, obviously African slaves that had come in. And uh, cannabis smoking was a practice that was used by these people to relax uh, when they were working in, in sugarcane fields and all these other things. So you had Mexicans and black sailors and, and, and slaves and Indians all kind of gathering together. Uh, and this sort of uh, merged together. And these two groups, particularly the Mexicans and the African-Americans, uh, were the two groups most responsible for introducing and disseminating cannabis into the U.S. and then also the most responsible for becoming targets of the racist powers that be. So let's start first with uh, Mexicans um, and then we'll discuss the African-American uh, uh, portion. So it was in the early 20th century, there was a sharp increase in the rise of Mexican immigration to the U.S. Uh, According to the numbers I saw, it's from around 20,000 per year in the 1910s to about 50 to 100,000 per year a decade later. Uh, and this was due to the Mexican Revolution. Uh, a lot of people were 
uh, fleeing. Uh, refugees and political exiles were fleeing to escape violence. Uh, and also because of labor, because there was uh, a lot of mining and agriculture industry booming in the United States that uh, rural Mexican uh, citizens were coming to the U.S. for, for, for employment. Um, so uh, you've written a lot about this kind of stuff. What's your take on how this all got started with, with the introduction of weed into America? Yeah, and that's a really great history. I think I would even go a little bit further back from the 1870s and say um, the introduction of the sort of social or recreational, however you put it, use of cannabis, um, you know, we now know was, was even earlier in the 1870s. And interestingly, it was initially brought by, you know, a lot of Portuguese and Spanish colonists essentially um, to serve as a slave pacifist. So the idea was in order to make sure there weren't sort of like island uprisings on these Caribbean plantations, the idea was you would have your sort of enslaved population consume this and, and they would be mellowed out and, and you'd sort of quell the threat of an uprising. Um, that ended up not working or that ended up not being the primary use. And like you just mentioned, um, it just was adopted as a social and spiritual practice by a lot of these communities. And so it's interesting, the use of, of cannabis, social use of cannabis has always been to subjugate certain populations. It's just the way the subjugation is happening really did switch from sort of colonial time period to a more contemporary moment. Um, and then, you know, like you mentioned, the Mexican Revolution happens in the early 20th century, huge influx, Mexican immigrants um, into the U.S. And I think the, what you mentioned about the labor anxieties is also huge and I think oftentimes left out of the conversation. So there was a ton of xenophobia and just outright bigotry, um, especially in communities where you saw a lot of Mexican immigration. Um, but it's also you see a lot of Mexican immigrants or Mexican Americans competing for jobs. And a lot of the roots of any sort of pernicious racial ideology or um, discriminatory policies come from like an inherent racism um, and, and it's like of quote unquote the other, but they are often very tied into economic competition. Um, and so you'll, throughout the entire history, you'll see that happening forever and ever, especially when it comes to campus. Um, anyway, so you see the first, no one, um, it's worth noting that cannabis existed in the U.S. or the English-speaking Americas before we see this influx of Mexican immigrants. Um, it just wasn't necessarily used that often for social reasons, no. Cannabis-based medicines were very popular uh, starting in the 1850s. You know, any anyone could just go to your corner store and buy it, and um, I just wasn't necessarily smoking, wasn't necessarily the way of consumption. Um, but you see Mexican immigrants bring it into the U.S. Um, you also see Caribbean dock workers bring it into like port cities in the South. So New Orleans, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was a big uh, sort of, and I, I'm originally from New Orleans, so I also have a soft spot for that city. Um, was sort of the nexus of a lot of that. Jazz musicians, New Orleans, cannabis, port cities. It, it all sort of combines to have this massive completion of black and brown communities. We don't like them for various reasons. We don't like them because they're more enfranchised after reconstruction, or we don't like them because they're taking our jobs in the Southwest. How can we criminalize and demonize these communities? 
and cannabis happens to be um, a really easy scapegoat at that point for the Anglo-American politician. Yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, noticed that the first recorded marijuana use in the U.S. by Mexicans was in Brownsville, Texas in 1903. And the first marijuana prohibition law ever passed in America pertained only to Mexicans and was passed in Brownsville that same year, which is a perfect example. The very first re first reported use, first reported law against targeting Mexicans. And then in 1915, uh, California and Utah passed similar state laws aimed primarily at Mexican immigrants and Colorado followed suit also in 1917. Um, and as we know, us cannabis smokers know, uh, smoking weed tends to promote a more enlightened mindset and thinking, uh, which in, in the case of a lot of these uh, Mexican immigrants uh, inspired what uh, white people at the time might have called acts of insolence, uh, <laughs> which is basically, uh, you know, Mexicans smoking marijuana dared to demand to be treated humanely or that their children be educated or heaven forbid they looked at a white woman, uh, you know, and this was considered, uh, this was something that the people in power, the white Americans in positions of power did not like at all. And, and they wanted to stop it, you know, and nip it in the bud. So they used, like you said, smoking and marijuana as a way to demonize and harass Mexicans. Uh, and then with the help of racist media moguls like William Randolph Hearst, uh, who, uh, launched this anti-pot, anti-Mexican propaganda media campaign, which was known as yellow journalism. Uh, this continued from the 1910s to the 1930s, and you started to see all these crazy sensationalized headlines about crazy Mexicans murdering people. And I, I have a few, uh, is the Mexican nation locoed by a peculiar weed, evil Mexican plants that drive you insane, all these scare tactics that they used uh, because basically, um, you know, they, they were afraid of the, and I'm putting this in quotes, darkies and Chicanos who were smoking cigarettes, uh, you know, who were basically smoking the same cannabis that was in the medicines that they were already taking, like you said, uh, which, is, which is absurd. But most Americans didn't even know that this was the same thing because of the way it was marketed through these articles and through this propaganda to be something completely different because it wasn't, they knew it as cannabis or Indian hemp, but now marijuana by using the, the Mexican Spanish word for it made it seem different. Right. Am I, I mean, it's, it's totally nuts. And if you go in the archives, um, sort of the traditional Spanish spelling of marijuana has an ancient, right. And so if you look at all the statutes until the mid century, you have marijuana spelled with age. The powers that be realized that they needed to make it sound even more threatening and even more foreign. There's now remember this is the early 20th century, so there's a powerful strain of nativism happening post World War One anyway, and so they're capitalizing on that. And they they change the spelling of marijuana. It has a J. It makes it sound more Mexican sounding. Um, so it's outrageous. And to your point about why these populations were um, so subjugated, it's true. You know, a lot of these communities just wanted to have equal rights. And we saw this, a lot of people who are anti-cannabis often cite the fact that Mexico technically outlawed marijuana before the U.S. did. And that is true. But what's important to realize is the same dynamic, sort of like the upper class, um, sort of wealthy, ruling class of Mexico 
consumed alcohol and the and sort of the lower class overwhelmingly indigenous um, Mexican population consuming cannabis and a lot of the rationale for that is it was accessible it was cheaper right and it was something you could have and so in Mexico you see the upper crust looking down upon um, sort of the lower classes who are just demanding equal rights and economic um, opportunity. And in order to criminalize those people and maintain their positions in Mexico, you, criminal, you basically criminalize cannabis in Mexico. And then that also, the same dynamic sort of happens in the US. So this like subjugated oppressor dynamic has happened sort of throughout most cultures who've struggled with this and it happened in Mexico um, and was just recreated a few years later in the US. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on something you said uh, because I, I heard a school of thought that, that said that when the Spanish invaders came and they started to subjugate the native people uh, on, in the Americas, that the native people were using psychedelic medicines as part of their spirituality. And the Spanish didn't like that. They forbid them from using those medicines, but they did bring hemp for them to grow because they needed the hemp for their sails and their ropes and all these other things. So hemp was a commodity that they needed. So they were asking them to grow it. And I, and the school of thought that I had heard was that when the, when the other plant medicines were taken away from the Mexican and native people, they've figured out and realized that they could use cannabis as a replacement because that was readily available. So all they had to do was grow some of the hemp to be a little more potent, I guess, and then use that as their sacrament. And that the reason it was called, they called it marijuana was um, because they named it after like Mother Mary, Jesus's mother, because by naming it after a Christian deity, it, the, the Spanish people were okay with it. Like they thought it was something good and they didn't realize it was kind of a code word though, that they would say, oh, we're going to go pray to Mary. And it really meant they were going to go smoke weed. Now, I wonder if you've encountered any of that in your research or, or, or not. You know, I have encountered that and that feels, you know, like a pretty compelling history. I think especially when we get to sort of pre-modern day research, it's hard to untangle a lot of exactly how certain things exist um, or came into existence. I, you know, obviously marijuana, Virgin Mary, it like that really feels compelling. There are some scholars who have recently said, oh, it also is drawing from Aztec naming traditions. A lot of, there are some scholars who have said, well, actually the Chinese word for hemp um, basically has a similar like sound to marijuana and we saw a ton of um, Chinese laborers who were immigrated into Western Mexico. Um, you know, there are also some, some people who say it's like a Semitic word that comes from Moorish Spain. It's probably all of that, if we're being totally honest. You know, there's some combination of everything um, and I don't think we'll ever be able to find out exactly how the etymology of the word but one thing I do like to make clear, and I think you and I are probably aligned on it, is the way the word marijuana was put in the U.S. was inherently racist and bigoted and xenophobic. But the word itself, at least given the scholarship that exists now, is not in, was not developed as a slur. You know, there are certain words that were developed just to disparage. From by most, by almost all accounts, that word was not. It just was weaponized when it came into English-speaking America. Right. 
I'm glad you brought up that point because I wanted to ask, you know, some of the more politically correct mindsets out there nowadays in this woke society has tried to frame the word marijuana itself as racist and tried to cancel culture that word completely and say, don't use that word. It's a racist term. You know, we should only be using cannabis and basically kind of shame people for still using the word marijuana. And, you know, I'm certainly not someone who ever wants to go out of their way to offend anyone. I, I believe in political correctness to a certain extent, but I think some people take it too far. And um, my feeling is people who have grown up with the word marijuana, um, to us, it's endearing. It's, it's, it's what we've called it. It's what it is. Um, I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to cannabis. I know that that's the technical name for it, but I wonder what your feelings are about that. Is, is marijuana a word that you view negatively? Is it one that you use or that you avoid? And what do you think? Do you think there should be a standard in the community where, where we discourage that word? Oh, this is so tough. And I, um, often find myself in this debate more often than not. Um, and I tend to have a bit of a different perspective that might align more with yours actually. You know, I think it's really important that we note that the, the fact that marijuana was brought to the U.S. to demonize and criminalize folks. That history, we can't like ignore that history. And while I don't, that doesn't need to be on every package, of course, like that would be a little bit much. I think it's important we all have that realization. But especially in like a globalized context, um, it's important to realize that, you know, by by skewing the word marijuana altogether, it's my personal feeling, and I don't speak for anyone else, that you're like sort of erasing that history of Latinx and indigenous use of the plant, if you're, if you're never going to sort of acknowledge that. Um, I also think we need to make things accessible. One of the big things, especially in the quote unquote cannabis industry is you know, it, it's very homogenous, especially at the leadership level. And there is, and I can say this personally in conversations I've had, there's a real desire by, by certain, you know, wealthy individuals who are in this space to distance themselves from the word marijuana. And, and some of that is potentially politically strategic, but some of it is like, oh, no, 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 we are not like what you think of as marijuana smokers. We're doing something different. We're like, you know, respectability politics and all of that. And I find that to be pretty pernicious. You know, the, that, there have been studies um, that have come out recently that said, we think everyone knows what cannabis is in the US. Like 80% of people only know the plant as marijuana. So if we're starting to talk about this new industry um, and this new, I keep saying new, but I know it's not new, but we're talking about this regulated industry. If we're talking about this new enlightenment, once again, not actually new, around like the use of the plant for multiple reasons. We also have to make sure people know what we're talking about or else it just becomes elitist um, and, and to lack of a better term, like whitewashed. And I think some of the like insistence on cannabis is really well-intentioned even if I don't agree with it. I also think some of it's really not very well-intentioned. I think it's like actively serving um, to perpetuate a lot of the same harms that we're trying to like roll back. So I use both. Um, there are many people who have really nuanced opinions on just using cannabis. Um, there are people who have really nuanced opinions on like when you should use either one, especially if you're dealing the criminal legal system because of the way um, it's been stigmatized. 
I could write a whole book on that, um, but I use both personally. Yeah, I, I do also. And uh, I always come down on, on the side of free freedom of speech over uh, political correctness in the sense of like, if you take political correctness too far, it becomes thought police. It becomes a it's like a fascism of the left in a way, you know, where you're not allowed to say this, you're not allowed to say that, you're not allowed to express this. And I don't agree with that. I think people should be able to have freedom of thought, freedom of speech, especially when the, when the intention involved is not one of malice, you know, so, you know, when someone is being hateful and they're using certain words or phrases, you know, that it's coming from a place of hate or, or derision as opposed to someone who's just using the word, either innocently not knowing or knowing and using it in an affectionate or, or in a colloquial kind of way, you know? Yeah, I, I thousand percent agree. I, I get what people are averse to using it. And I think there's some legitimacy there. I just think it's like really important we're not reflexive. And I think, you know, the road to hell is paid with the best of intentions. We need to realize, are we not, you know, by sort of reflexively saying, oh, it's a racist word. We're not actually dealing with the history. And we're also not speaking to a globalized context, you know, like, so all of Spanish speaking America is supposed to now not use the only word they have for this um, plant. It, it just feels like, all I have to say, it's very complicated, um, but we need to be a little bit less one note when we're interrogating things like this. All right, well, we need to take a quick commercial break, but stick around because we'll be right back with more from Natalie Papillon here on Canthropology. All right, and welcome back to Canthropology. I'm your host, Bobby Black, and I'm here with Natalie Papillon, uh, director of the Equity Organization, and we're discussing the history of cannabis and racism. All right, let's transition now. We discussed the Mexican uh, end of the prejudice going on in the beginning, uh, and now I want to shift the focus to the African-Americans who were also part of this equation. Um, they were using marijuana in this time period, uh, uh, and they were also targets of attacks because of it, uh, particularly, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the jazz scene in New Orleans. Now, New Orleans was a melting pot. It was one of America's first real melting pots. You had slaves and Africans and Indians and Hindus and Mexicans and whites and all these different cultures and people in Asian all coming through this, this really important port city, bringing all these goods and shipping out all these goods. And what happened is all these cultures and people intermingle and out of that cultural melting pot and the smoking of pot in that, in, in that melting pot, the birth <laughs> of jazz music, which is the, you know, the most free, free form, uh, expressive music that had, had ever been heard at the time. Um, you had stars like, uh, Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway who were, you know, avowed, pot smokers who were very pretty open about their use of pot, uh, even writing songs about it, uh, Reefer Man and Viper and Muggles and all this stuff. Um, and they really, uh, they really became a target of the, of once again, the white powers that be, whether they be corporate or governmental, just basically rich white people who didn't like what they were doing. Right. I mean, yeah, I, the story is really as old as time. Um, I love what you say. 
it's melting pot in New Orleans and other port cities, and they like to smoke pot. I think, you know, there's probably an argument to be made that jazz would have existed as it existed without cannabis and or marijuana. And there's also an argument to be made that there's no way it could have been. I think it's really important to think about the time in which we're seeing this all happening. So it's like post reconstruction, you're seeing sort of black populations, especially in the South, gain, you know, not a ton, but more economic and political um, freedom and enfranchisement that's threatening just by sheer demographics. And um, I'm from the South, so it still looks a little bit like that. That feels like a threat to the political power of this, like, basically the next generation of the Confederacy, for lack of a better term. And so people are really, really worried about that. They're really, really worried about interracial relations, sexual relationships like it, that is another thread that comes through everything you see like marijuana makes black men have sex with white women like they're or you know white women have sex with black like that is a real concern because you have this like very white supremacist um, racial purity sort of thing going on in the south and especially um i also think we need to remember this is alcohol prohibition right so a lot of this is happening so a lot of the reason black um, Americans were using cannabis was because they liked it and it had been introduced to them by, you know, dock workers who are working in sports, but also because it was cheaper and more easily accessible to them than alcohol, than liquor, right? So we need to realize this is all in the backdrop of like this other national prohibition. And um, it was really adopted, like you said, by people like Louis Armstrong. I like want someone create some sort of brand called like Satchmo or something. Cause I just think his whole history with um, the plant is so great and interesting. He's a daily, daily user, heavy user. Uh, he sang its praises for many years uh, and uh, he, he really uh, got a lot out of it and, and thought it was beneficial. And um, it's funny because he was, it made him a target, you know, in 1930 and uh, a year after he recorded the song Muggles, uh, which is a slang term for marijuana at the time. Uh, he was arrested for a joint in Los Angeles and jailed for 10 days and had to agree to leave California and not return for two years. Now, this is before any national cannabis laws had been passed. It wasn't even illegal. You know, Anslinger hadn't even come along and done what he was doing yet. This Even before that, he was they targeted him over a joint and, and went after him. And this goes to the heart of what you were saying, uh, really about the... The, 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 how terrified they were of the intermingling of the whites and the and the blacks. Jazz music became more and more popular among young white people in the country, and they were getting into it and started hanging out in jazz clubs and things. And uh, they didn't like it one bit. So they they of course labeled jazz satanic, voodoo music, uh, cl and claimed it was corrupting the white youth and uh, used marijuana as a way to target those groups, target those musicians, to basically put them in their place. Basically say, hey, you know, we got our eye on you and we don't like what you're doing. And if you don't play by our rules, we're going to throw you in jail. A thousand percent. Um, Harry Anslinger in particular hated jazz music. I think my, that might have been an aesthetic preference, but it was mostly he was a racist. Um, and he like really calls out, he had an entire file just dedicated to like all of the jazz musicians he was gonna go after and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was gonna go after. And um, it's interesting, you hit the nail on the head. 
jazz was a musical style and, you know, very popular one. It's called the jazz age for a reason, but it also promoted this um, inter-ethnic mingling, whether it was the tea pads of Harlem or um, even in like the juke joints of the South. And that was the thing that really was, to use a word of the day, triggering, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And we see jazz musicians especially become the most um, public facing black face of, of marijuana. And from there, we start to see those, those national laws passed. And even Louis Armstrong, who really did love weed, was forced to sort of give it up because he was, I'm being hounded all of the time. Like I cannot um, continue to exist this way. And, and he really was sad about that. And I'm sad for him in hindsight, um, but they, he was a big target because he was so popular. Yeah. And we should just mention uh, Harry Anslinger, who we're, we're talking about for those, for the benefit of those that don't know, was basically the first drug czar. Uh, he came to power as the head of the Narcotics Bureau in like the uh, 30s, uh, 20s, more like 30s. Um, and then what what Anslinger did was he built on the yellow journalism that had come before, all the Hearst articles, you know, demonizing marijuana. He took that and ran with it. And he created more propaganda based on that. Uh, he, he put together files, like you mentioned, uh, which he called the score files, which anything negative he could find about marijuana, he would put it together. And he basically used his office and the media to create a narrative around the idea that jazz was this evil music created by people under the influence of marijuana, and it made black people forget their place in society. He also said, I have a few good quotes from him here. He said that, uh, he once said that it makes darkies think they're as good as white men, uh, that uh, there are 100,000 marijuana smokers in the US and most are Negroes, Hispanics, and entertainers. Uh, their satanic jazz and swing music results from marijuana use and causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes. Uh, and he was, you know, terrified of white girls getting pregnant by Negroes and all this stuff. Uh, and using all this hysteria and all this propaganda that he drummed up to terrify white America, uh, he was able to get his, uh, his law passed, which was the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. Uh, and that was basically the first federal law uh, that, that outlawed cannabis. It didn't technically outlaw it, but it gave them a pretense to arrest people if they didn't have the proper paperwork, which most people didn't have or couldn't afford. Yeah, um, it's worth noting that that Marijuana Tax Act 1937 was struck down as unconstitutional 30 years later, or you know, 32 years later. Gensinger, um, one thing I wanna note about him, poorly bigoted, xenophobic, not a great guy, I wanna have a beer with him whatsoever. Um, and, all of those quotes you had, he either like said directly or he would pin um, the propaganda in like Reader's Digest, um, or he would sort of like, when he testified in favor of a cannabis criminalization law, he would bring those and read those out loud quite dramatically. He was centered on the floor of Congress um, for using racial slurs, which was like pretty hard to do in the 30s. You know, you had to be pretty extreme to have that happen. I think another thing we need to realize is like, there is also a lot of professional anxieties, but not, I mean, I wouldn't respect him more if he was just at his heart a huge bigot, but he was also just like playing the system a bit. He was sort of one of the top guys of the head of alcohol prohibition, which is something that a lot of people forget. And um, 
21st Amendment, he wouldn't have a job, you know, without alcohol prohibition, you know, he's like back in Altoona, Pennsylvania, wherever he's from. And so he had originally said marijuana was not a big deal, who cares, like when he had bootleggers to bust. And then once that opportunity dried up, he all of a sudden does like a huge pivot and marijuana is the most evil drug of all time and so forth and so on. So not only was he a horrible person, he was a calculating horrible person. And that's, um, you should judge him for that. That makes the efforts, he was clearly very smart, you know, and, and very, um, he was an opportunist. And that made everything he did that much more powerful and that much more virulent. And he was not, he had no ethical qualms. So the Gore Files, research is dug into that later, 198 of the 200 files were made up or had nothing to do with marijuana yeah. Like those were on the floor of Congress. Yeah. Um, he like, he just played, he just made things up. Like it wasn't even he used bad science or whatnot, it just never happened. Yeah. Um, and that's some of the most infuriating stuff for me. For sure. Um, and then so, okay, so the Marijuana Tax Act goes into effect on October 1st, 1937. And the very first day that it goes into effect, the first cannabis arrest in US history was made in Denver and it was a Mexican-American man named Moses Baca for possession of a quarter ounce. And he was sentenced to 18 months in, in jail for a quarter ounce on the very first day. They couldn't wait to go bust a Mexican guy the minute the law went into effect, right? Uh, and in the whole, and in the year, that whole first year after it passed, uh, black people were three times more likely to be arrested for violating the laws than whites. And Mexicans were nearly nine times more likely to be arrested for this charge. So again, right out of the gate, the minute this law is passed, Blacks and Mexicans are the focus and the target that they're going after these people to put them in jail. It's, I mean, I had actually never heard that stuff, but it surprises me so little. Um, we see this sort of the same disparities happening today. I, I tell people who are a little incredulous, this is, feels almost like a conspiracy theory, and I get that. I'm like, this is not analysis or, you know, me like pulling together a lot of disparate threads. They wrote this, like this, you know, like this is in a lot of these bureaucrats' own words. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like this is not being like, oh, what if, or let me put my, like this is explicit. Um, we, we can prove this without a shadow of a doubt, and um, it's really horrifying. A hundred years later, nearly hundred years later, we haven't really done anything about it. So that, so this practice of after the tax act is passed, goes on through the forties for over a decade, basically the same, the same thing. And then in the 50s, things actually get even worse. Uh, in the 50s, you have the Boggs Act in 1952 and then the Narcotic Control Act, which is also known as the Daniel Act in 1956. And what these laws did was they increased the penalties for drug violators by lumping all drug offenses together, uh, You know, whether it was heroin or whatever it was, cannabis, everything got lumped together into one category. And it was the institution of the first mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, so you have... Uh, these crazy draconian sentences where a first offense for possession alone could land you two to five years in prison and, and a fine of up to $2,000, which at that time is a lot more than $2,000 today. Um, and in most cases, uh, after a first offense, parole and probation were taken completely off the table. So meaning if you were caught a second time with cannabis, you were serving your whole sentence. There was no way out of it. And some of these sentences could go as high as 99 years, depending on the level of the offense. 
And I mean, imagine that. Holy cow. No chance of getting out. 99. I mean, your life's over for some weed. It's pretty crazy. I feel like I'm so glad you brought up the Boggs Act because even I was not as familiar with the Boggs and the Daniel Act and the Little Boggs Act until recently. Something that I came across the other day, between like 1958 and 1969, in Virginia, the most heavily penalized crime in the entire state was marijuana possession or, or the possession of any drug. Mandatory minimum 20 years. Like you said, no probation or parole. Um, at the same time, first degree murder in Virginia, that mandatory minimum was 15 years. So like enshrined into law, you get five less years for killing someone, first degree murder, than for marijuana possession. Um, you know, they're not as draconian now, but we just see how politicized drug, drug use more than it gets around this time. Um, especially when it comes to selling narcotics to kids. Like you mentioned about sort of the early history, a lot of the propaganda about Mexicans and logo weed and whatnot were like peddling to white school children. It's always been sort of this like, what about the kids? What about the white kids? And so when you look at sort of this mid-century time period, all of the messaging, all of the statutes are really hyper-focused on quote unquote protecting children, but really criminalize people through the guise of like the softer message of, oh, we're just trying to protect our sort of suburban kids. Um, there's a criminologist who calls this the suburban imperatives of the war on drugs. And I think that's a really important point to make. Yeah. So yeah, uh, as the, the, the little box acts, as, as you said, uh, states, different states all across the country started passing their own little versions of this, some of them with penalties even harsher than the Boggs Act. Uh, you're looking at 20 to 40 year minimum sentences on a lot of cases. Um, and the justification that a lot of them used for these insane penalties was, uh, was the progression or stepping stone theory, which we today call the gateway drug theory, which is that, uh, you know, they didn't have any scientific evidence or leg to stand on to claim that marijuana by itself led to insanity and addiction and violent crime as they claimed in the past. So instead they claimed that marijuana use led to the use of harder drugs like heroin, which then in turn led to the addiction and the crime. So they, they just put, they made this, the marijuana, the stepping stone to the larger and they were just, they, they, their justification was, Oh, we want to head it off before it gets there. So we're going to impose these harsh penalties. Um, you know, Anslinger said that the danger was over 50% of young addicts start on marijuana smoking and then graduate to heroin when the thrill of marijuana is gone. And, uh, and Boggs himself even said, uh, younger people usually start on the road to addiction by smoking marijuana and they graduate into narcotics, cocaine, morphine, and heroin. Um, so yeah, they, this was their justification and this is where the gateway drug theory was born. It was in that time period. Yes, definitely. Um, Anzinger sort of got the rug pulled out from under him, but I told you he was a wily guy. So when he finally realized, okay, no one's buying this anymore, just switched to a different tactic. And as we know all too well, that tactic is still, even though gateway theory has been disproven by any reputable scientist with their salt, still very much in the public consciousness and the national debate, even today in 2020. Yeah, there's so much deprogramming that still has to be done. Um, and speaking of deprogramming, we're moving on into the 1960s. This is where stuff starts to get good. Um, 
But before we get to the 1960s, we need to take another short break. So don't go away, because we'll be right back with more on the history of cannabis and racism here on Canthropology. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Bobby Black, and this week on Canthropology, we are talking with the director of the Equity Organization, Natalie Papillon. When we left off before the break, we were about to start talking about the 1960s. Uh, so in the early to mid-60s, uh, those racist, prohibitionist worst fears were at last beginning to be realized because not only did the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 outlaw discrimination and segregation based on race, but thanks in part to the beatnik movement of the 50s, uh, marijuana use had spread from people of color and undesirables, quote unquote, to white suburban middle-class youths on a massive scale. Uh, as one New York Times uh, reporter commented, nobody cared when it was a ghetto problem, Marijuana, well, it was used by jazz musicians or the lower class, so you didn't care if they got two to 20 years. But when a nice middle-class girl or boy in college gets busted for the same thing, then the whole community sits up and takes notice. See, and that goes right to what you were saying about the suburbs before, um, that this was the, they, they imposed these harsh penalties to go after the people of color, but now when white people and white kids start getting busted for the same things, now they're like in trouble because, okay, well, what are we gonna do? We can't put young uh, Ted in jail for 40 years for weed. He's got a bright future ahead of him, you know? So now they have to start, what are we gonna do? We have to rethink this stuff. And, uh, you know, so, so their worst fears were realized and their methods they were using were starting to backfire on them. Um, and then that started morphing as well because the beat movement ended up morphing into the hippie counterculture movement which really embraced the use of marijuana and psychedelics to encourage the youth to, to rebel, to, to turn on, tune in, and drop out, as uh, Tim Leary said, uh, out of civilized society. And this really freaked most Americans out. It freaked white America out. And so because of all this, uh, they, it ended up helping to elect the law and order candidate Richard Nixon as the new president in 19. And so uh, talk a little about your feelings on uh, the 1960s and the Beats and the Hippies and how that led to Nixon. I mean, you fit so well. I think I came across a quote from this guy named Steve White, who was a head of, you know, the Drug Enforcement Administration, or not the head, but a high-ranked official. And he has this quote and he says, you know, when I started in law enforcement, the general opinion, especially in the white middle-class community, was like marijuana? send them to jail because they're probably black or Chicano to begin with. And it wasn't something that affected us. Like he went on national television and said that, and I don't think he was endorsing any longer, but he was very much um, illustrating sort of what the quote unquote mainstream, and I use mainstream to, you know, leave it to Beaver, um, sort of political culture was like. And, and then, you know, now 
Ted, I love, and we're going to call it, Ted's going to be for the rest of the podcast, is using it. Um, and people are freaking out. And they're not just freaking out about cannabis or marijuana usage. I mean, you have people who are no longer um, intent with the like picket, white picket fence and the 2.2 kids. Um, they want to, there's, there's the women's movement, there's civil rights movement, there's an anti-Vietnam protest, there's um, a reimagining of just our like entire political and economic system. And so all of that like quote unquote anarchy uh, really gets what, what Nixon, I guess, would refer to often as like the silent majority worry. Because not only does it feel like the country's sitting into chaos, even if that's a gross mischaracterization, it also is like kind of an ego um, it hurts someone's ego because you know, they live their lives like this and their kids are saying you the way you live your life is is wrong and so like any you know the human impulse is to lash out when you feel attacked and um we're on drugs and Richard Nixon um particularly was a really good way of um trying to reassert their dominance and even if they sort of realized in the back of their head it, it wouldn't always be like that you could at least um have that like last breath of the traditional like great society thing and you know nixon not a fan um crook not a great president i will say in in hit in one thing in Nixon's defense because i do feel like it, even when i i find myself doing it when we talk about the war on drugs we often like really show nixon which we should um because he really formally um declared it but it, he actually devoted much more of the federal um, drug enforcement budget to public health issues than law enforcement and interdiction efforts. You know, he was like actually quite a fan of the public health approach to, to problematic drug use. Yeah, well, I don't want to paint Nixon as like the, the savior. So, you know, he still declared the war. Okay, so let's not, and he was also, forget drugs, like he had some major issues. But he even then, you know, was a little bit more pragmatic about this. Like scientists were saying, you're not gonna, I'm not talking about weed really, I'm talking about more potentially problematic substances. He realized you were never gonna police your way out of it. And he surrounded himself with people who like, even if they were more conservative, knew that. And his immediate successors took that on, you know, Jimmy Carter, you know, is the best example. Reagan is the real one. Like you were supposed to be very mad at, at a president, Let's get really mad at Reagan because he, that's when you really see our modern day war on drugs. I think of like the 60s and 70s as one phase, and then post 1981, it's like, damn. I'll let you go off on Reagan in a little while. I just want to finish up. We're still. Yeah. <laughs> but you will have a chance to go off on Reagan. Oh, no, no, no. And yeah. yes, yeah. I can always shoot on Nixon too. So, so um, yeah, so Nixon came, comes into office. His administration, is, uh, top of his, of his agenda is to squash this counterculture revolution uh and nixon also a racist much like anslinger um he couldn't arrest people for their beliefs or their taste in music so he used drugs once again to target his what he perceived as his political enemies uh and he tasked his attorney general john mitchell with creating a comprehensive plan to go after drug users and dealers in a big way the result of course was the controlled substances act uh that placed marijuana as a schedule one along with heroin and other narcotics purported to have no medical value and high potential for addiction and abuse. And with his newly announced war on drugs and the Controlled Substances Act, 
He went after leftist radicals, hippies, Jews, black people, anyone that he saw as being in the way of his political agenda. Um, and uh, this was this was actually even admitted by uh, Nixon's domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, uh, who reportedly in a 1994 interview said, uh, the Nixon White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against either the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuanas and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That is from Nixon's advisor. So these guys, what you, like what you said about Harry Anslinger, these guys were very smart and they, they knew what the truth was and they didn't care. They wanted to use the tactics that were needed to get their desired result. And in their minds, maybe the ends justified the means, but uh, we paint them now in retrospect and, and most people, a lot of people in time, paint them as the villains that they are in this story. Yeah, it grinds my gears that even now as we're thinking about undoing a lot of these policies, it's still framed like, you know, the, these politicians, they had the right idea that it was just ineffective or like, you know, it was just bad policy. It wasn't bad intentioned. When that's just not the truth, you know, it was like oh, the intentions were bad. Obviously, the policy was bad. Let's just call it out for what it is so we can move forward. Trying to sugarcoat what the um, impetus for a lot of this drug war uh, effort only like means that we're, we're not really tackling the big issue and doing the most we can to unspool it. Well, Nixon's racism was very well documented in his infamous <laughs> Oval Office tapes. He's heard uh, calling uh, ne the Negro bastards and saying they like to live like a bunch of dogs. Uh, he also says uh, a lot about Jews and Mexicans. Uh, he said, "What I have a bunch of quotes here. Finding a, finding a Mexican that is honest, that's the problem. <laughs> uh, and then, he, and the Jews, uh, Lester Grinspoon, uh, you know, uh, beloved uh, cannabis auth uh, activist author who recently passed away. We did a special episode about him recently. When his book, Marijuana Reconsidered, came out, uh, Nixon read about it in his briefings and said, every one of the bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What's the matter with them? I suppose it's because most of them are psychiatrists. You know, he just, he just said a lot of nasty things about Mexicans, Jews, and Blacks. And so, you know, he, he was obviously racist. Um, and Nixon also, as you mentioned, uh, created the DEA in 1973, um, which combined a number of different agencies that existed before into under one kind of uh, umbrella. Another thing, though, uh, taking this back to New York uh, in 1973 was the, was the uh, adoption of the Rockefeller drug laws, which I'm sure is something that you're familiar with. Tell us a little about what, what, your, what your research has told you about the Rockefeller drug laws. You know, it's so funny because a lot of the work I do and the history is on the, is on the national scale. And so um, going into state by state has just not been a big focus. But the Rockefeller drug laws were so far reaching and so sweeping that they actually informed a lot of what happened um, on the state level and in pretty much every other jurisdiction. Um, one thing on those Rockefeller drug laws were 
increased, they were sort of like the little bogs act, a very, very draconian um, penalties for drug use in New York State. You know, one thing I want to note is marijuana wasn't their focus. Like that wasn't the target. Of course, it's like, obviously it would be sort of, um, marijuana users would be captured by these sort of drug laws. But New York in the late 60s and 70s, especially in black communities, was having a bit of a heroin issue. And so one of the things that I want to be, you know, as impartial as possible, a lot of the people who advocated for and fought for the Rockefeller laws were black civic leaders. So, you know, it's really easy to say, like, it's a more complicated history, especially when you get to more modern times. Um, there was a real desire for, from the black community to sort of fight off this addiction, especially this heroin addiction that was ravaging communities. Um, and so oftentimes black leaders were championing a lot of these draconian policies. And that I do think was well-intentioned, but not well thought out. Um, and it also just had this reflexive punitive thing that like is very American and transcends every single racial group. The way you should have done it, it's a, it's a valid concern, is public health. Like that is what the science said, that is, that is what it continues to say. We need to take a different approach and we're just reflexive about this. And the answer is always like, a you know, the criminal legal system is like a one-way ratchet. More, let's criminalize more behaviors with more increasingly draconian punishments. No, and we should know now those punishments never go away. It's not like a, you know, you don't go back and forth. It only goes, turns one way. So you really need to like check ourselves when that's the first thing we, we decide we want to do, regardless of who it's coming from. Well, in, in, thanks in part to the Rockefeller laws, uh, New York State's prison population went from 10,000 in 1973 to 70,000 in 2002, uh, a sevenfold increase in a few decades. Pretty uh, upsetting. Um, and then in the late 70s, there appeared to be a little uh, glimmers of hope. Uh, some states started passing decriminalization laws for cannabis. The Carter administration seemed open to possibly legalizing uh, nationally on, in some form. But any progress that was made was pretty much wiped out in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. Um, famously launched the Just Say No campaign, his wife, Nancy Reagan. Uh, and Reagan really doubled down on the drug war. Um, he, not only with the Just Say No, he launched DARE, the Drug Abuse Resistance uh, Education Program that went into schools and fed propaganda about drugs to children. Um, and he also brought back the mandatory minimums, which at that point, most of which had been repealed. Reagan brought him back and, and doubled down on those as well with the uh, Sentencing Reform Act and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1984 and 1986, respectively. And then, of course, there's also the crack epidemic that took place in the 80s, which, uh, although not cannabis, was related uh, to this whole issue. So talk a little about... Uh, the Reagan era and and what was going on at that point. Yeah, so late 70s, like you just mentioned, we see a bit of a loosening, especially under Carter. Um, that's once again, that suburban imperative. You know, when white kids are now facing these draconian sentences, parents' movements sprout up and say, no, 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 let's decriminalize and whatnot. Um, so there's always been this movement where it's like middle-class white youth, are victims who must be protected from both legal drug markets and the criminal drug laws, you know? So that's that's what we look like going into the 80s. 
Um, Reagan brings in his moral majority, so it's not just drug use is problematic and eternal behavior. It's like a moral wrong. You know, this is not a matter of like, let's decrease this, let's like, you know, discourage this. It's like, oh, people who use drugs are just inherently immoral. And you see that in a lot of- Drug users are scum, drug dealers are scum. Yeah, they're they're not just vegans. They they might be wiped off the face of the earth. You start seeing politicians truly call for the execute, like main quote unquote mainstream politicians call for the execution of drug sellers and drug users because it was like there was like almost like a eugenicist um, approach to a lot of this because of this demonious religious revivalism happening in the eighties. Um, Reagan turns to military, military, militaristic, sorry, rhetoric to sort of escalate the war on drugs. The country has a little bit more money to vote towards drug enforcement efforts. So um, they have Nancy Reagan, just say no. And I think one of the things that you just alluded to, the crack epidemic really was the turning point or sort of the death of Lynn Bias, I guess would be the real turning point in sort of making it people on both sides of the aisle get behind these increasingly um, draconian drug acts. Crack epidemic was not an epidemic. And that's something that like, I often want to stress to people. I mean, it was very bad. It did ravage a lot of inner city neighborhoods predominantly. By the time the first national news story came out about crack, the number of crack users had already fallen, was already fallen. By the late 80s, pretty much disappeared off American streets. Not really, but like in terms of significant numbers. Crack is cocaine. It's just like a, a, a crystal version of it. But crack was thought to be more prominent in the black inner cities. There are always more white crack users than black crack users. Even though 90 to 95% of anyone's sentence under these like draconian crack measures were black. Politicians knew this. The U.S. Sentencing Commission rec- like, did not want the 100 to 1 disparity around crack to ever go into place. And so anyone who says we didn't know is lying because they had a federal agency testifying this shouldn't happen and they decided to ignore it. There's just like a media frenzy. There's like the 80s. So now everything's on, you know, drug raids are on your afternoon news and just say no is like, you know, increasing fear and it's you sell a lot of newspapers right now an epidemic. It wasn't great. I don't want to like downplay what the crack trade did to a lot of communities, but what happened in response to it, devastating neighborhoods, hollowing out, you know, entire communities, disappearing like quite literally generations of young men was so much worse um, than this like season or two of, of, you know, pretty problematic use that should have been treated in a different way. So we need to be really conscientious of how we think about the media's role in a lot of this because it sold a lot of newspapers talking on an epidemic that never came to pass. Yeah, absolutely. And then going into the 90s, after the Reagan era, uh, you saw the birth of a lot of other new techniques that were used. Uh, you have the, the militarization of the police started happening under Reagan and got a lot worse during the 90s. Um, you, st- you see the no-knock raids that started happening where p- police would break down people's doors if they were suspected of possessing or selling drugs. Uh, you see the three strikes laws come into effect where if you're you know, convicted a third time of a drug offense, you're, you're away for life or in some cases given the death penalty. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, stop and frisk, which uh, also began in the 90s in New York predominantly. 
um, highly controversial policy where police began just detaining and searching people right on the street who they deem suspicious. You know, I mean, you can say uh, he looks suspicious. I mean, there's really no justification. Before that, you would technically need a warrant to search someone. And now all of a sudden that wasn't the case anymore. Um, and naturally, uh, the practice disproportionately targeted people and communities of color. Uh, they weren't stopping and frisking people in the suburbs. They were doing it in the inner cities and, you know, in the lower income uh, areas. So um, all these things, no-knock raids, three-strike laws, military police, uh, and stop and frisk, all of this was a massive escalation throughout the 90s, even long after Reagan was out of office. Um, uh, what's your what's your research? What's your experience with that with that whole uh, era? I mean, you touched on so many of the big things that happened in this time period. I think the the other thing that's really important is civil asset forfeiture. So, like the policing for profit. Um, a series of court cases, Supreme Court cases, made it so there's basically now a drug exception to the Bill of Rights. Uh, so, and you can seize any assets suspected of, of being involved in some sort of drug transaction. Um, and the onus is on person, the suspect to sort of prove their innocence, which is not how the justice system works. But we've seen this like perversion, you know, a lot of, you know, I'm sure you've encountered this probably, but when I tell people I work on drug policy and cannabis policy, they're a little bit like, really, of all the things going on, this sounds so silly. You just want to be able to smoke more weed. I'm like, First of all, the scale of arrests still happening are pretty extraordinary, but it's perverted the constitution. It's perverted our entire um, system. You know, everything you see happening on our TVs today around the police, I can tie it almost directly back to the drug war. No knock arrests, for example, like you just mentioned. Um, sec, you know, program section 1033, the militarization of police, which is the Department of Defense issue billions of dollars worth of like mine resistant vehicles to, I don't know, suburbia USA, um, as long as it's used in quote unquote drug enforcement activity, like it's totally, even just the rise of proactive policing with stop and frisk has been devastating. And, you know, I mentioned I live in New York. In the early 90s, there were less than a thousand marijuana arrests every year in New York City, still the biggest city in the country. In, two, in the early 2000s, there were 50,000. It's a 5,100% increase because of stop and frisk. So stop and frisk and quality of policing was just marijuana drug enforcement by another name. Um, and these heavy-handed techniques are happening still as they relate to marijuana, as they relate to other things. Um, it, it's all born from like the, what I call 1990s war on weed. Yeah. Over the past several decades, there's been a 900% increase in prison population, predominantly Black and Latino, almost all drug-related crimes, the vast majority of which are cannabis-related. So that speaks to the point you were just making. Um, even despite the growing number of states that are enacting legal cannabis laws, people of color are still more likely to be stopped, searched, arrested, convicted, harshly sentenced, and killed by police than white people are even though consumption rates are virtually identical across all the states. Uh, and this is uh, particularly the case for drug violations. Uh, and it really all goes back to those same stereotypes and prejudices that were pushed back at the dawn of prohibition. Um, I have, I have a, a list of sobering statistics, uh, and I'm just going to read some of them out. Uh, and I don't really I'm not have a point necessarily. I just really want to read these because I think they're important for people to hear. Uh, and 
please comment on any that you that you'd like to comment on. I'm going to run through them. Um, according to the ACLU, cannabis arrests accounted for 43% of all drug arrests in 2018, and 89.6% were for possession alone. Uh, nationwide, black people are on average four times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession, even though usage rates are comparable, even in legalized states. And in some states where it's illegal, they're 10 times more likely to be uh, arrested. As of 2014, there were over a million and a half drug arrests per year, more than 80% for simple possession and half of those for marijuana. That's over half a million people in jail for weed possession alone just in one year. In 2018, Blacks and Latinos accounted for nearly 90% of arrests for cannabis possession in New York City, despite being just 51% of the population. Simple marijuana possession was the fourth most common cause of deportation offenses in 2013 and the most common cause of deportation for drug law violations. More than 13,000 people were deported in 2012 and 13 just for marijuana possession, breaking up homes of you know Mexican Americans, Latino Americans. Um, and research shows that prosecutors are twice as likely to pursue mandatory minimum sentences for black people as for white people charged with the exact same offense. 2017 study by the National Registry of Exonerations found blacks were five times as likely as whites to go to prison for drug possession, despite that, once again, uh, whites use drugs as much or more than blacks. And finally, nearly 80% of people in federal prison and almost 60% of people in state prison drug offenses are black and Latino. 80% of the federal prisons black and Latino are drug users. We could spend all day listing out, just like cutting this in different ways and you'll see the same story play out over and over again. In sort of every step from arrest to sentencing, to incarceration, to parole and probation, um, there are huge racial disparities that like cannot be explained by drug consumption rates at all. You know, you mentioned the night over 90% of arrests in New York City are Black, Latinx individuals. And, you know, across the country, there's virtually no difference in marijuana consumption across different racial groups. In New York City, white residents are twice as likely to consume. So they are actually twice as likely to consume, um, and you'll just never get cited. You'll never get arrested, um, which is, that makes it even more just blatantly discriminatory. I think a lot of the pushback I get, and I'm sure you get some of this, is, you know, not that many people are incarcerated for weed or simple possession. And like to a point, that's kind of true. I mean, there are 40,000 people. It's not, that's a ton of people. But when we consider there are 2.3 million people um, currently incarcerated, I can see why it feels like a small potatoes. It's not. Because those arrests turn into records which turn into a, you know, another arrest, which then puts you in prison. So it's, it's really hard to sort of see the entire picture because it's like a Byzantine process. But we know it's like, it's a gateway drug in a certain sense because a marijuana position arrest, especially if you're black or brown, is a gateway to sort of incarceration in some form or fashion, especially because you're like hyper-focused on a certain age group. And we, you know, there's a ton of data and analysis on that. So, we can't just say it's not a big problem because most people just spend a night in jail. First of all, no one should spend a night in jail. Second of all, it's like much bigger. And all of these stats, my gut is I'm only familiar with a few of them um, as written, but like they're vastly underplaying the problem. But these, 
statistics are exactly the kind of things that people mean when they're talking about institutionalized systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. This that's the evidence. That's that's laying it out there. Yeah, this is not a conspiracy theory. It's really obvious and we're also underreporting it. You know, a lot of we don't have great national numbers. Parole and probation, we know like 30% of people who are currently incarcerated are there, not because they committed a new crime, because they violated probation. Um, and we know that especially in large cities, one of the number one reasons you are a, a probation violation is failing a drug test. And we know it's disproportionately, if not exclusively, marijuana drug tests. So we're like, we don't, we don't really even have an accurate picture of how bad it is. And it already is this bad, which is very scary. Yeah. And, and now let's really talk about incarceration because this is where it all leads to. This is where everything we've been talking about leads to. And what happens is, uh, I mean, there was an amazing best-selling book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by civil rights lawyer Michelle Alexander, um, uh, where she talks about how mass incarceration is basically the new legal form of slavery. Um, black and brown men are imprisoned over minor nonviolent drug offenses. And then when in prison, they are forced to provide free labor. They lose their right to vote. They're disenfranchised. Um, and of course, if they have children at home, those children are then left fatherless, which increases their chances of going down the wrong path and perpetuating this cycle. Um, and then when these men and women get out of prison, their criminal records then make it extremely difficult for them to get good jobs or loans or open businesses. Uh, and it, once again, making it more likely that they'll revert to a life of crime because their options are so limited. Uh, so this is, this is the, the problem we're, that we're dealing with with incarceration. Aside from the fact of just the torture of being incarcerated, there's all this other, other uh, side effects of it that really just uh, decimate the, the, the population. I mean, it's, it's, we pay lip service the fact that prison and incarceration is about rehabilitation and creating a safer, more, you know, secure society. Everything we do is the opposite of that. First of all, you're never rehabilitated. And it just doesn't happen. It's not what it's said to do. It's for punishment. And it's also just for like warehousing people. You'll notice a lot of these sort of big upticks in prison populations happen at very low points in the economy. So just like we see in, in the early 20th century and sort of Mexican immigrants competing for labor, when we see these economic issues, we also see prison populations rise. And it's not just because people are desperate and so they're committing more crimes, it's because there's like a need sort of like other groups that are seen as competition. Um, you know, it's broken down entire communities. It's not doing anything to make us, it's actually making us less safe. Um, and it just violates everything we claim to stand for as Americans. I mean, the drug exception to the Bill of Rights. How, how does that even work? Um, we have more people incarcerated than any other, per capita, than any other country on earth. I yeah, mean, more than, five fascist dictatorships. I mean, five percent you know. of the world's population, twenty-five percent of the incarcerated population. Like how? I, I don't. How do we square that? Way? That is the prison industrial complex. I mean, when you have a for-profit prison system, you have prison builders making money, you have prison guards and correctional officers making money. You know, uh, this is all a system that feeds the police, feed, feed them customers, basically. The, the prisoners are their customers. 
And what they get out of it is they get free labor and they get jobs, but these people get their lives destroyed <laughs> in exchange, you know? Yeah, I could wax poetically about the prison show complex for hours. Um, and I, there are, once again, like most of it is malintentioned, but I also want to put it on every single one of us, even for people who do not necessarily like ascribe that way of thinking. A lot of it has to do with what, and I tell everyone, what happened, you know, the things that are done are what people are incentivized to do. And politicians who make, they make these rules are incentivized to punish because that's what the American public feeds off. We're just like reflexively punitive. Like that is just our go-to MO. And so until we also look inside ourselves, and I find myself doing it too, you know, um, someone screws up and it's on social media and you're mad and everyone's like, oh, well, they should pass a law against that. You know, we don't need more for the most part, we don't need more laws. We have way too many laws. We need other ways of dealing with problems in the system that are not criminal um, proceedings. And so we also need to look, you know, be very conscientious of like how we think about punishment and what we really think the purpose is. Um, and if the way we're going about it is accomplishing that goals, those goals and pressure our elected officials who work for us, if they're not getting on board, they need to be out. You know, this is a huge issue. It's expensive. We're also paying for it. Like, it's really expensive. Sure. Well, this brings us to uh, the modern day, which is, uh, let's talk a little briefly about the legal cannabis industry. Um, so, you know, we have this new legal cannabis industry that's booming and uh, the injustices and the inequities are once again taking center stage. Uh, to quote from Michelle Alexander's book, it says, there are white men poised to run big marijuana businesses, dreaming of cashing in big, big money, big business selling weed after 40 years of impoverished black kids getting prison time for selling weed and their families and futures destroyed. Now white men are planning to get rich doing precisely the same thing. So here, this perfectly describes the tragic irony here. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people of color still behind bars, in many cases serving absurdly long sentences, simply for possessing or selling marijuana, while outside you have white hedge fund executives raking in millions for imp with impunity for doing basically the same thing on a far grander scale. And, and of course, the communities, the poor communities that have been ravaged by the drug war for decades are seeing almost no financial benefit from the taxes being raised by this new heavily taxed cannabis legalization uh, industry. So. Uh, I know this is something that you're heavily involved in. I'd like you to weigh in uh, on this on this issue. You know, it's a travesty. It's um, it's infuriating. It's so it's perhaps the most blatantly discriminatory and racist part of all of this. You know, a lot of people are. You know, this is a, a laboratory of democracy, and it's um, sort of a federalist issue. We cannot be a country that crib locks people up at the same time people are getting paid tens of millions of dollars. What does that say? I mean, forget individuals just feeling a rightful feeling of anger and umbrage. In what way would that engender any trust in any sort of official or, or policymaker? Like you're actively promoting a policy that's just gonna in the law is just horrifically unjust on the, you know base level, um, but it's actually actively following dis, uh, fostering distrust and disillusionment and um, anger that, that are going to lead to bigger problems, you know, in the day. I, 
we probably need to spend another sort of hour and a half talking about the way social equity um, works in the cannabis industry. But one of the things that I think is really important to note is some of these sort of wealthy, well-connected, predominantly white men who are running MSOs or whatnot want to get rich. And that's the goal. You know, it could be paper clips, it could be wheat, like whatever. They saw an opportunity, they went for it. I do think there's a real responsibility there. And I think it's up to a lot of times consumers to put pressure on it, as well as, you know, policymakers. But we need to you know, make sure that they're doing what they can to repair a lot of these harms. There's also a strain of cannabis industry executives, and I've spoken with them often, who not only don't want to, you know, engage in this conversation, they are actively, actively working and lobbying against legislation that would decriminalize on the federal level. And I know that sounds insane because you're like, how does that work? You know, in what world would that happen? You have people who are so all about the Benjamins here you are fighting as a cannabis operator to keep this plant illegal on the federal level and you are spending millions of dollars doing so because it'll be better for your bottom line and that's where i think it's not an ethical issue that's an immoral issue and we need to be really conscientious and you know journalists like you bobby i'm sure you're on it but like we need to call these people out because it's one thing to be apathetic, and I have strong words for people who are, but we are actively working against this and actively promoting the continued criminalization, all profiting off of it. You deserve to be publishing. And so that's a big thing that I'm seeing more and more, especially at this moment. Um, we got to start calling some of these guys out. And I say guys because they're just tend to be overwhelming. And there's people that are kind of referring to it as Jim Crow cannabis laws. They're kind of saying that uh, the system is designed to keep the little guy out, which includes in many cases people of color. So uh, very high fees for applying for licenses, for paying for licenses, for lawyers, for all this stuff, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to enter the market. There's no room for the little guy. There's no room for the people that that want to do a community, a smaller scale kind of operation. Uh, and of course, uh, in most states or in a lot of states, if you are convicted of a previous felony, you're not even eligible to apply for any of those things. So if you were busted for growing really good weed and then you get out of jail, you can't even start a business growing really good weed because of your weed conviction which is absurd. I mean, if it's legal now, then that shouldn't matter, right? I mean, you never should have been put in jail in the first place. So expungement is a big, important thing. And, and some states are moving forward with expungement, which is great. We need more of that. Um, but as of now, I mean, legal weed is, is around a $40 billion market, last I saw, they, they estimate. And out of that, maybe a fifth of the people that are involved in an, in an ownership level are people of color and only about less than 5% are, are black, you know, there's no equity there. There's a lot of barriers to entry as we discussed. So what do you think are some of the remedies or solutions that can, that, that people can do to help fix this? I mean, obviously legalizing cannabis nationwide would be a big step. Uh, but what, what, what steps should we be looking at taking to make this a more equitable system? Removing cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act would be huge. We need to be really, really intentional to say what that means. So 
we're doing it in a way that allows for community reinvestment with some of those uh, tax revenue and not just, you know, helping people get licenses from proportionally impacted communities. Not everyone wants to go into the business. That is totally fine. You don't want everyone, you know, wouldn't even be an industry, right? Um, but that doesn't mean your community wasn't totally ravaged by these policies. So not just helping people who want to get into business. We need to make sure we're not quote unquote decriminalizing just to recriminalize. So we don't need special cannabis industry task forces and we don't need a million draconian and onerous regulations. Um, we need to make sure that we're not just like continuing to face the same group of people for violating a different set of norms. And I'm going to be I'm calling people out today. A lot of these laws, the laws or, or the statutes around, oh, if you have a previous conviction, you can't be in the industry, or there's a criminal sentence for selling unregulated product in a regulated market. Those are coming from a lot of these cannabis brands to stifle competition. I've talked to a lot of policymakers. Some are quite informed on these issues. Most have no idea. They're like, I think the weed's a thing now. You know, like that's truly what they like, tell me about it. So they really listen to whoever gets their ear. And the people getting their ear are people who don't have great intentions. So we need to be like very active, especially people who know a lot about how these markets work and about the plant and about cultivation. Um, we need to be really honest. We can't sell people on next year this city is going to have a hundred million dollars from cannabis tax revenue it's not going to happen it takes time and when you sell something through on that revenue um politicians want it and they'll do anything to get it and that includes criminalizing and fining and um, making it you know keeping everything off the unregulated market which just leads to issues as we know um i think as consumers the one of the biggest things you can do and not to sound very 2020 is like vote with your dollar the product is probably better from a smaller sort of local purveyor anyway um, it might be a little bit more convenient hopefully not the power in this country is economic power and so let's support the communities that were harmed who are, who are working to, to enter this space and develop businesses in this space um, and let's also support the companies who even if they aren't directly harmed are, are doing their part to repair the harms. So I think that's going to be huge. It's really hard to go up against billions of dollars in venture capital. Um, but when everyone makes a concerted effort to not allow them to continue to raise billions of dollars, things change. So vote with your dollar. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there should be a, a serious concerted effort to get the nonviolent drug prisoners that are still in prison out. That needs to be a high priority because those people deserve their lives back. Um, expungement of, of convictions is another big one. Um, and where do you fall in the uh, controversial topic of reparations? Do you, do you feel there, there should be some form of uh, financial reparations paid to people or communities of color uh, due to the injustices they suffered uh, in the past due to the drug war or whatever else? You know, there are people who are much more schooled on the conversation on reparations and direct financial payments than I am. And so I'm not even going to speak on it just because I don't have all of the information. Um, and it's a very complicated, nuanced issue. I will say programs to help people who are disproportionately impacted sort of get back on their feet are not reparations. And I know a lot of politicians have been saying that, you know, their issue with, for example, the MORE Act is the drug war reparations. That's not it. I think there's a pretty strict definition of reparations. And 
I haven't seen anything that directly falls under that. So I think we're like, these are creating programs that are going to make every community safer and more secure and more prosperous. And so that's how we need to frame it. Because if you frame it in one way, even people who would normally be amenable to it have oftentimes a reflective anti-attitude. And so I, I don't like to use the word reparations. A, it's not accurate, especially with a lot of the stuff I work on. And B, um, it's really polarizing. So that I guess that's my little reparations diatribe. But there are experts and, and they'll have a million, there are a million ways to cut it. Okay, so, so winding down, um, what advice would you have for people of color hoping to get into or succeed in the cannabis industry and what resources uh, are there available for people? Honestly, if we're being totally candid, I would say think really hard. Um, it's a really, really tough industry, even for the most well-connected, well-financed operations. And the last thing I would want to do is encourage someone who does not have a safety net or, or does not have a million opportunities to go into something um, and lose the little they have. So I think you have to really spend a lot of time educating yourself. I think you have to really know, be realistic about what an, the best outcome looks like for you. You're not gonna, not everyone's going to be a millionaire. It's just not going to happen. Um, I wish that were the case. It's just not the case. And so stay in your, you know, if you feel passionately about it and you think you can really make a mark and um, this is what you want to do, of course, I'm not saying don't do it, but be really strategic. You know, don't try and open up a like vertical integration unless you have a $10 million. Uh, you just be like, what are the skills you already have? How can you, how can they be used in the industry? Start small, um, think about sustainability in both the environmental and the economic sense of the word um, and go from there. And you don't always have to touch the plan either is what I tell people, um, especially in states that are regulatorily quite burdensome um, because that can, that just is very expensive. And then also get politically involved because a lot of these things, the barriers can be undone by policymakers. A lot of these are artificial, you know, it's an agricultural plant. It's an agricultural good. Like it, there's no reason pot should be any more expensive than tomatoes <laughs> in, a, in a real, um, which is on one hand, that means you're not going to, not everyone's going to be a millionaire. They're not a million they're not a billion tomato millionaires, um, but it also doesn't need to cost as much to start a grow or um, a sell. So you have the power to change a lot of this regulation. Vote, run for office, vote for candidates that support these views. Yeah, absolutely. And sit and talk to your local. It's all, you know, small as all, especially on this. The random like state senator that you've never even thought about has a tremendous amount of power. So you can, you know, write to, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever, and of course that's necessary, but like talk to your city council person because they actually have more impact on how the economic development of the campus industry is going to go than Donald Trump or Joe Biden in a certain way, you know, that that's a little bit hyperbolic, but you know what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah. Tell everybody where they can find out more about you and your organization online. Of course, um, you know, we're on social media at Equity Org on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, we do a lot of publications on Medium, so medium.com backslash Equity Org. Of course, there's our website, equityorganization.org. Um, 
and sign up for our newsletter. We send a lot there um, and we're having a lot of exciting things happening. And then if you have a question or a comment, hello at equityorganization.org. We'll get back to you. Um, probably not super timely, but within, the, within a couple of weeks. So looking forward to hearing from all of you. Awesome. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today to shed some light on these extremely important issues. Uh, and thank you for the amazing work that you and your organization are doing to address them. Um, I will continue to follow your writings on, on medium.com uh, and on everywhere else. And I look forward to your book coming out. I hope I'll get a signed copy when that comes out. Um, of course. <laughs> and uh, it's just been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you so much for shedding light on this important issue. And thank you for having me. Um, this has been amazing. And um, I'm so happy that you're doing this. Thank you. Take care. And if you out there would like more information on the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Campropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. Uh, if you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and subscribe, leave us a review, share it with friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our awesome media partners, Cannabis Radio and Hayes Radio, as well as Leaf, Canasaurus, Skunk, Canapolitan, Greenleaf, and Monkey Biz Magazine. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Canthropology. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, this is Bobby Black, and I am...